The material in this podcast is for information purposes only. It does not represent the opinions of Vested Finance and is not intended to be investment advice. We recommend you to consult with a financial advisor before committing to any financial decisions. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Vested Finance Podcast. My name is Kaihan, and I'm an editor at Vested, calling in from Singapore. Joining us for today's episode 16 is Darwin, who we know is one of the co-founders of Vested Finance. Welcome, Darwin. Great to be here again, Kai. I think for this week, we will be continuing our deep dive on Amazon. In last week's episode, we talked about Amazon's efforts to expand into other consumer spending categories, namely healthcare, music, video, streaming, and groceries. In this week's episode, we'll be discussing Amazon's other businesses, fintech, advertising, and cloud computing. Alrighty then, let's kick things off. We'll start with Amazon and payments, which can be divided into two categories, B2C and B2B. Can you share with us a little more on Amazon's B2C efforts? Yes. When you think about payments, specifically consumer-facing B2C, business-to-consumer payments, one of the key challenges is distribution. After all, the provider of the payment solution cannot generate any revenue from the payment channel if the solution is not used. So here are uh, a few Amazon's initiatives on payments. The first is Amazon Prime Credit Card, a credit card for Prime members that gives you 5% cash back for purchases on Amazon.com. There's no doubt that Amazon is incentivizing its Prime members to use it by giving quite a generous 5% cash back. But also on the other side of the equation, Amazon can negotiate lower fees on these transactions because the company has such a large volume. Number two is Amazon's cash. It's a cash wallet solution to enable consumers to spend on Amazon without the need for debit or credit card, which is an important initiative, especially internationally, where cash-based transactions still dominates daily spending. And then the third is Amazon One and a couple of other biometric-based solutions that we will talk in greater detail. So in reality, the majority of consumer spend is still done outside Amazon. So how can you get a massive distribution while competing with incumbents in the real world, right? Because Amazon's advantage is in Amazon.com. In the real world, the two primary incumbents is probably Apple and Google Pay and your typical credit and debit card. But in Apple Pay and Google Pay, they both are leveraging their dominant position as the maker of the smartphone operating systems to distribute their payment solutions. Amazon does not have a distribution advantage in this space. So initially, it experimented with the Amazon Go app where you download an app and then you use a QR-based payment solution. But then when you compare that to Google's or Apple's solution, it has a lot more friction, right? Because you have to search the app, download the app, and then open the app every time you have a QR code you need to scan. So to overcome this, Amazon is leveraging something that we already have, that being our palm print that is through Amazon One and through Voice, which is through Alexa. Yes, Amazon has multiple projects to leverage biometric identification as a form of payment. Let's talk about Amazon One first. Amazon One, as you mentioned, is palm-based, so it removes the need for the phone altogether and relies on your handprint as a unique identifier that's tied to your credit card. So instead of whipping out your credit card or your phone, you just scan your palm. When it does that, so Amazon has these hardware that it's planning on deploying, which can take an image of your palm and also the vein patterns and then send this image in an encrypted format to the cloud to identify you. The downside means that Amazon will have a stored copy of your palm signature. Clearly, there are privacy concerns here. You can change your phone, but you cannot change your palm. The application can identify you, your credit card, your identity, and then authorize payments that way. 
but Amazon actually has ambitions to expand Amazon One to be more than just a payment solution. It plans to push this solution to other merchants as a point of sale solution. Because of this, Amazon emphasizes that they will not be tracking users' purchase information. Amazon even wants to make this application a full identity management platform. So for example, in the future, you can enter an office building with a wave of your palm instead of waving of your badge. Or you can go to a stadium for a concert or a sporting event and then use Amazon One to pay and then to enter the, the area. And then the second is the voice purchase. So Amazon also has made inroads in voice-based payment efforts. It's primarily through the Alexa app or Alexa-enabled infotainment-equipped cars or other smart devices. For example, Amazon has been partnering with car makers, powering the infotainment AI assistant. So let's say you're driving a Buick, you're at an Exxon or a Mobile gas station. You can order the phrase, Alexa, pay for gas, and then it'll just authorize the payment through voice through your car. Two interesting observations here. The two key challenges of voice-based shopping are discovery and selection. Imagine if every time you buy something with your voice, let's say take Google smart speaker, for example. Okay, Google, order Chinese food to be delivered by 6 p.m. The smart speaker then must revert back by giving you all the relevant options, right? Which Chinese food, the new restaurant that you visited yesterday or the closest one to your home. And then before you know it, you have this possibly long conversation with your smart speakers. And as you can imagine, that actually adds friction and bad user experience, right? For voice shopping to work, the buyer must have already decided on what to purchase. So it's at the bottom of the decision-making funnel. This is problematic for Google because Google's main business is predicated on advertising, which means serving options to customers. Now, Amazon solves this problem by first going after purchases that are tied to specific locations, eliminating the need for discovery and selection. Going back to the original example, you're already driving to a gas station. That means you've already made a selection on what to purchase and where to purchase it from which vendor, right? So now you're just completing the transaction using your voice. Okay, moving on to B2B. On this front, Amazon is facilitating payments for other businesses. There are two key projects. One is Amazon Pay and the other is Merchant Services. Let's begin with Amazon Pay. With Amazon Pay, the goal is to reduce friction and to make the checkout process faster. Amazon has payment and address information on hundreds of millions of consumers, right, in the U.S. and globally. With Amazon Pay, other e-commerce websites or retailers can offer Amazon Pay as a checkout method on their website and also a physical retail. This way, consumers no longer need to create an account, fill out payment information and shipping, which then reduces friction and increases conversion and reduce checkout time. So it's similar to the one-click checkout that you experience at Amazon.com. On this front, Amazon competes with PayPal, credit cards, and then a slew of buy now, pay later companies, Klarna, Affirm, and Afterpay. We have an image of a third-party e-commerce website that leverages Amazon Pay that you can visit on the accompanying blog article for this podcast. Well, that sounds interesting, but how does Amazon make money from these payment solutions? Similar to other payment processing companies, Amazon makes money from a mix of both fixed and variable fees. Fixed fees is the authorization fee. Typically, every transaction, it's about 30 cents or so. And then variable fee is the processing fee. That's a percentage. So if it's web or mobile, it's 2.9%. If it's Alexa powered, which includes purchases in real world goods and services, that's about 4%. And then some of these revenues are then shared with the issuer's bank and then Visa or MasterCard, whoever powers the rails for the cards. Notice that Alexa actually charges a lot. Alexa powered payments, about 4%. 
now we can see why Amazon's pushing really hard to get this voice-based transaction everywhere. Increase adoption of Alexa through smart speakers, smart glasses, earbud, car infotainment system, and others. Now, merchant services in itself is a significant sector since e-commerce, as we know, is thriving on Amazon. There are two subsectors. One is SMB lending, and the other is Amazon Amex. The SMB lending, small business, small business lending, uh, or called Amazon lending, is created in its latest iteration. It's created in conjunction with Goldman Sachs. It wants to provide working capital to merchants selling products on Amazon. The theory is that Amazon has a data on the health of these businesses on its platform, the inventory level, the average time period inventory is sold, the amount of revenue, and so on and so forth. All these data can allow Amazon to help banks underwrite the loans. But the effort seems to be faltering, though. The amount of loans doesn't seem to be growing. In 2017, Amazon made about $692 million in loans. And then in 2018, it made about $710. So it's less than 3% growth. So maybe owning the merchant data within Amazon is not sufficient to underwrite these loans profitably. And then the second, you mentioned Amazon's Amex. So this is a pure play credit card for business owners. On average, business owners spend more on credit cards than the average consumer. Because of that, they generate higher revenue for the card issuers. In the U.S., although business credit cards only make up about 4% of the total number of cards, it represents 17% of the total spend. Now, we've come to arguably Amazon's most important business segment. AWS, which is Amazon Web Services. I find it fascinating that Amazon is this company that basically made cloud mainstream and not Microsoft, which has a lot of enterprise customers and not even Google, which has significant computing capabilities. Can you share with us AWS's history and its importance on the grand scheme of things? I do think that this is a testament to Amazon, the organization. Everyone is empowered to experiment, and when they create a product or a solution, they make it accessible to other team members via API. They're trying to minimize the burden of communication and promote collaboration. It negates the need to talk to one another. This is why the company can run so many different projects, pursuing so many different opportunities. In the early 2000s, Amazon was struggling with scalability issues. The number of consumers it served grew, did the selection of items, and the numbers of external merchants on the platform. And to make matters worse, there were inefficiencies where different teams within Amazon were reinventing the wheel, creating their own technology stack from the ground up for the different projects they were working on. To solve these problems, Amazon started building a shared common infrastructure resource that can be freely accessed by internal team members via API. And then Amazon realized that they built up their capacity to manage load during peak time, which is typically in December during the holiday season. For the rest of the year, they had all these excess capacity. So then they decided to rent out this excess capacity to other companies. And in 2016, AWS was formally launched. It started with one product, really, the cloud storage solution, they called the S3, which launched in 2016. But now, 14 years later, it offers hundreds of different types of databases, compute, and artificial intelligence solutions. It powers Apple's iCloud products, Netflix's streaming empire, and the Department of Defense, and even the CIA. So of all the cloud infrastructure as a service provider, Amazon is the largest, followed by Microsoft. As of the third quarter of 2020, AWS contributes about 12.7% of Amazon's total quarterly net sales, or about $11.6 billion. But it contributed 57% of its operating cash flow. It's a big cash machine, and it's a very profitable segment of the company's business. And it's still growing 30% year over year. 
Now, to the casual observer, Amazon is just an e-commerce giant. But let's face it, Amazon's industry coverage is simply far-reaching. Yes, their revenue has become quite diverse. They started with e-commerce, which is the beginning, but then it has converted that into a platform that powers many other things. In Q3 2020, its core first-party e-commerce business contributes only about half of its net sales. The rest of Amazon, which includes AWS, ads, subscription services, third-party merchant services, and physical store sales, all these have grown into substantial revenue generators with higher margin. Take ads, for example, right? In the three quarters of 2020, the first three quarters, ads and other business unit generated $13.5 billion in revenue. And probably at the end of the year, the full year 2020, may make closer between 18 to $20 billion. That's no small change, right? This revenue is from Amazon showing display ads on its websites or promoting search results. Amazon does not break out the profit margin on this segment, but you can estimate it from, let's say, Google's. So, for example, Google, if you look at Google's earnings in Q3 2020, the operating margin is about 60 to 65% if you exclude traffic acquisition costs, which is the money Google pays to generate traffic to its search engine. Google is the best in the business on this front, but Amazon ads business is only five years old. And remember that almost two-thirds of shopping searches starts on Amazon now. And that number has been increasing as Amazon continues to grow its consumer mindshare. It's a growing business and it has a much higher margin than its core. After analyzing Amazon's different segments, one can't help but to see the different flywheels, right, that the businesses have. We've done part one and part two, and in total, we've written more than 6,000 words on Amazon and the diverse business that it has. So it has all these flywheels upon flywheels where growth in one area promotes growth in the other. For example, Amazon started with working towards increasing item selection, which then allows it to increase revenue and user base, which justifies the company to build a very expensive distribution and logistic network, a network that its competitors had a hard time copying, which then allows it to charge a membership fee for faster shipping, which increases spending by the consumer and increases customer loyalty, which justifies Amazon to build other services to increase time spent engaging with Amazon and more distribution network, which then allows Amazon to sell advertising and other subscription services because it has become the shopping destination and also viewing destination. And because Amazon has such a large user base, it can now attract third-party merchants, which you can sell other services, advertising, and even financial products. On and on, right? So it's truly formidable as most businesses are lucky to just have one flywheel. One example that we like to quote is Netflix. Netflix has almost 200 million paying subscribers, which is the largest in the world. And because of that, it can spend 15 to $17 billion on content alone every year, which is a scale that its competitors find hard to compete with. One thing to note, though, being everywhere has its downsides. It scares your competitors and create opportunities for others. So in a way, Shopify is creating a shopping operating system similar to Amazon, all the discrete units, the website, logistics, and payments for independent brands that do not want to participate in Amazon's ecosystem. Walmart told its vendors that they cannot use AWS as a cloud provider which in turn benefited Microsoft's Azure. And then in 2017, after Amazon bought Whole Foods, all the other grocery chains were rattled. They cannot build their own logistical and delivery network to rival Amazon. So they all rushed to partner with Instacart, which is now in 2020 valued at more than $30 billion in the private market. I couldn't agree more, Darwin. For every ambitious venture, there's bound to be challenges involved. 
Anyway, that's a wrap to a very insightful analysis and summary on Amazon and its business coverage. Thank you, Darwin. Thanks, Kai. Until next week. To our listeners, we hope you've enjoyed listening to this episode. For more insights into markets and emerging technologies, please visit our blog at vested.co.in. As always, take care and stay safe.